Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to you. This is episode number 719-719, and this is your host, Jason Hartman. Thank you so much for joining me today as we dive into another handy service for real estate investors. You know, things don't always work out perfectly with our rental properties, do they? Sometimes we have some bumps in the road. Certainly, we all know that as investors because we manage our own expectations and we understand that income property is the most historically proven asset class in the world, but that doesn't mean it's perfect. It has its problems. And occasionally, if you haven't had one happen to you yet, you're going to get a bad tenant and you are going to have to consider whether or not you should evict them, kiss, kick them out. Don't kiss them. <laughs> Boy, that was almost like a Freudian slip, wasn't it? Kick them out of the property and get a tenant who can uphold their contract and pay as they have agreed to. You got to do this. You got to make people uphold their contracts. And we as landlords, we have to uphold our part of the bargain too, right? We have to provide a, a working property that has its appliances working and so forth. And there are two sides to every story, aren't there? But when it comes to a tenant not paying, if they're just simply being a deadbeat and they're thinking that, hey, Bernie Sanders said everything would be free, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we got to kick them out. And so we are going to talk about another service that would be uh, very handy if you are self-managing your property. But even if you have a property manager, this is a really handy service too. It is a nationwide eviction service. Now, certainly you can go and you can just go online and search and find an eviction service. Sometimes the property manager handles the eviction, but whatever it is, the point of this show and the point of all the work we do is to make you a more empowered investor so that you have tools at your disposal so you can make choices, you can be efficient, you can make them quickly, you don't have to spend a lot of time on things. Because remember, ROI doesn't just mean return on investment, it means return on involvement. And so we don't want to be spending a lot of time agonizing over these little things things. We want to be an efficient business person, an efficient manager of our managers, or an efficient self-manager. And as you know, if you are a regular listener, I, I learned many years ago that I could efficiently self-manage my properties from thousands of miles away. I could self-manage with tenants I've never met and properties I've never even seen. Again, not perfect, but it can be a very good alternative. You've heard us talk about that on prior episodes. And of course, at our live events, we've gone into self-management in detail. In fact, if you are a member for a whopping 120 bucks a year of uh, JHU Online, Jason Hartman University Online, then you have heard some of our conference calls where we talk about self-management as well uh, as talking about it on prior episodes here of the podcast. So we will get into that in just a moment. But first, I want to just chat with you uh, briefly. 
Nothing is brief with me, you're thinking, right? As I go on my various rants. First, I want to chat with you in an attempt to be brief about this concept that good old Peter Schiff was promoting many years ago about the great decoupling. And I have debunked that theory many times. Peter's got some good stuff to say, but also he's been way wrong about a lot of things, too. Anybody who's predicting stuff is going to be right and wrong, folks. Soon we've got Harry Dent coming up on the show. I recorded that episode last week, so uh, you'll hear what he's right and wrong about, too. The Great Decoupling. To what does that refer, you ask, if you do not know and you have not remembered me talking about it on prior episodes? Well, what it refers to in this case is the Chinese economy. Why does that matter, you say? Well, it matters a lot because it has a lot to do with the U.S. dollar. It has a lot to do with our trade policy. It has a lot to do with inflationary pressures. Now, the concept is basically this. And Peter, you're welcome to come back on the show and debate this with me and correct me if I'm saying anything incorrectly. But here's the basic idea that Peter Schiff was promoting many years ago. It's the concept that, look... China is growing their middle class, and that is true. And they are growing their middle class, and eventually they will decouple from the U.S. They will not need the U.S. as their customer. They will not be dependent on U.S. imports, well, their exports to the U.S., but our imports here in the U.S., from China because they could decouple. If they can develop, in other words, their own customer base where Chinese goods can be produced, I mean, there's massive amounts of Chinese manufacturing, we all know that, as Ross Perot talked about, that giant sucking sound and was absolutely right. You know, Ross Perot needs more credit. I don't hear anybody talking about how right he was. He's probably one of the guys that helped the Clinton crime syndicate really become established in the United States when good old Bill was president, right? Because uh, a lot of people say he's the reason Bill Clinton became president was really Ross Perot. Well, whatever. Lest we go on another of the Jason Hartman tangents here, right? Okay, so the idea is they'll create their own middle class economy and they won't need us anymore because they can sell directly to their own population and create an economy within their country that is not dependent, at least not so much, on exports to the U.S. And what would that mean to China? Always try to put yourself in the other party's shoes, right? Whenever you're in a deal, try and think, uh, put yourself in the other party's shoes. Whenever you're in an argument, whenever you're in a debate, whenever you're negotiating anything, it's always good to, as the old saying goes, walk a mile in that person's moccasins, as, it's, as the quote goes, right? Before passing judgment on him or her. Well, what China would be thinking here is, gosh, if we can decouple from the U.S., then we don't have to take all of their rotten dollars that they are debasing and they are going to uh, be paying us back in ever cheaper dollars as they debase them due to their reckless, wanton spending. The spending that Ronald Reagan says was, to, uh, what was the saying? He said, uh, to, to say that the U.S. government spends like a drunken sailor is an insult to drunken sailors. <laughs> well, that I'd say is certainly true. And so China doesn't like this deal very well, right? Because they sell their goods, we get the lifestyle benefit, we get the goods here in the U.S., we pay them in monopoly money, right? Fake paper dollars not backed by anything, except aircraft carriers and, and the such that I've talked about before. People say, oh, it's not backed by gold, Peter Schiff says. Oh, gosh. These people think we live in like uh, 400 B.C., I guess, yeah, gold, that's the big thing. we got to have gold. 
No, you don't got to have gold. <laughs> what you need is the largest military on the planet. That's what the dollar is really backed by. All right, uh, unless we get off on another tangent. But there's a Business Insider article I saw just yesterday, and it's pretty interesting about the Chinese middle class. So, Peter, maybe you're right. Uh, I don't think so. But uh, let me just share a couple of points of this article. It says, China's middle class is exploding. China's middle class is exploding. And the article talks about largely due to Asia, the world's middle income population doubled in the past decade from 399 million people to 784 million people, according to Reuters or Reuters. I think you say Reuters, even though it doesn't look like that. You know, that's the news service like the AP, right? Okay, China's middle class is on fire, according to a study uh, by consulting firm McKenzie and Company. 76% of China's urban population will be considered middle class by 2022. That's defined as households that, wait for it, you ready folks? By the way, this is obviously my editorializing not what the article says. But now back to the article. Wait for it. Households that earn, and this is in U.S. dollars, between $9,000 and $34,000 per year, parentheses. That might not sound like a lot, but adjusted for prices, it delivers a roughly comparable, quote, middle class, unquote, existence to other countries. In 2000, just 4% of the urban population of China was considered middle class. Okay, fine. Let's take a look at how it breaks down. Now, this is a little graph here, and it says 2012 and 2022, the projection, right? So this, this projection over the course now, of course, as I'm reading, this is 2016, but I guess the last time they did the survey was 2012. So 10 years between these two surveys, the number of affluent people in urban China was 3% in 2012, projected to be 9% in 2022, upper middle class 14%, up to, get this, 54%. Now, what does upper middle class mean? They didn't define that one, because middle class means 9,000 to 34,000 a year, so upper middle class must mean 34 to $50,000 a year, then your upper middle class in China, right? The mass middle, 54%, in 2012, actually declining because a lot of them went to the upper middle number, right? Oh, by the way, it does define this, so I'll be with you in a moment on that. Ooh, that's not impressive. Wow. Okay, hang on a moment because I'm going to blow you away with some numbers here. But a lot of them moved from the mass middle to the upper middle. So that's good news, right? And then the poor in 2012, 29%, and 16% projected in 2022. But wait, here are the McKenzie and Company numbers, the definitions for each of these four classes on the socioeconomic ladder in China, right? Affluent above $34,000 a year in household income. Now remember, that's household income. So that could that means probably husband and wife, two parties, if there are any wives left in China. I mean, their one-child policy means they have a shortage of females. Yeah, where are all the women at? Okay, <laughs> not enough of those. And that one-child policy, just horrific. Okay, but... Let's not get on that tangent. Upper middle class defined as 16,000 to 34,000 a year. Wow, that's upper middle class. Hmm? The mass middle defined as 9,000 per year to 16,000 per year. And the poor below $9,000 per year. China had an urban population of 730 million people in 2015. Uh, even if that figure doesn't change, and it will only grow, by 2020, over 550 million people in China will be considered middle class. 
That would make China's middle class alone big enough to be the third most populous country in the world. Folks, this is so unimpressive, I can't even begin to tell you. I mean, look, it's impressive if you live in China. It's certainly impressive. And I mean, this is great news that globalization is pulling people out of poverty. As I've talked about, you know, I used to say this uh, back in 2004 when I was giving seminars. I used to talk about how globalization has lifted 375 million people around the world, not just in China, but most of it was in China, a lot in India too, uh, and other places. 375 million people out of poverty. This is wonderful. It's an amazing time to be alive. But does this bode for the decoupling theory? No freaking way, man. Not even close. Not even close. Not even close. Why? <laughs> well, just ask yourself, if you're a Chinese company and you make widgets, by the way, listeners, you do know what a widget is, right? Do you own any widgets? I hope you own some widgets. I own lots of widgets. <laughs> a widget is simply an economic unit. It's a thing, a gadget, a widget, whatever. You know, that's what the economists call stuff. They call stuff widgets, right? So if you make widgets at your Chinese factory and you're now exporting 90% of your widgets to the USA and you're selling your widgets for $100, and the household income in the U.S. for middle class is, I don't know, what is it, $58,000 a year or something like that? I can't even remember. If it's $58,000 a year and the mass middle class in China is $9,000 to $16,000, from a percentage of income standpoint, who do you think's really going to be able to buy your widgets? Yeah. This is great news for China, but if you think that you're going to be selling iPhones to the mass middle Chinese market that makes $9,000 to $16,000 a year, and you've got a $700 iPhone, which, by the way, is the real cost of your iPhone when you take out your calling plan that basically finances the cost of your phone for you and locks you into some rotten carrier... They're all kind of rotten <laughs> in different ways. But yeah, this, is, this, this decoupling ain't happening anytime soon. That's my point. And this is good for peace. Why? Because trade is good for peace. Now listen, you've heard me many times criticize these trade agreements that you can mostly blame Bill Clinton for. And listen... Looking back on good old slick Willie Bill Clinton, I didn't like him at the time, but looking back, I, I like him a lot better than I used to. Now his wife, <laughs> no, please, no Hillary, the criminal known as Hillary Clinton. God, no, please. You know, the Clintons weren't so established in the world of, uh, well, the Clinton mafia wasn't so powerful back then as it is today. Anyway, that's another discussion, obviously, but look, folks. <laughs> you're not likely to destroy your customer. That's why global trade is good, but the trade agreements are not a very good deal because our wimpy politicians from Clinton onward did not negotiate very good trade agreements for you. And guess what? That's why the American jobs market sucks. It largely sucks. And, you know, it may not suck in your world, it probably doesn't if you're listening to this show, but by and large, there are very qualified people with college degrees working at retail jobs. Now, these are not considered high-end jobs. Those used to be temporary jobs. There are people getting you to sign up for the, the airline credit card at the airport that have degrees in psychology. What I, my point being that they're not using their degrees. They're driving Uber and Lyft cars. This is not the highest and best use for these people. The, this is not a good thing, right? But that's what these trade agreements have done. Now listen, love them or hate them, and I can see why you might want to hate them, but good old uh, Trumpsky, the Donald, <laughs> the, you know, the guy with the tiny little ego, yeah. Anyway, 
him, he would probably negotiate much better trade agreements for the good old U.S. of A. And that would be a pretty good deal. But you can see why foreign leaders criticize him, because they know he would not let them have these awesome deals they have today. This is a very complicated issue. We've discussed it many times on prior episodes. We will discuss it in the future. Trade agreements, incredibly complex. But basically, it comes down to two essential concepts. You can either have more jobs in America and higher paying jobs in America, or you can have cheap stuff at the store, cheap widgets. All right? You can't have both. There's a lot of middle ground there, though, where you can negotiate. And if our government was actually uh, looking out for the people, it would negotiate better deals for the people. Now, why did I even bring this up today? Because as you know, we talk a lot about the impact of the three basic economic scenarios on our real estate investments, inflation, deflation, stagnation. This matters. This stuff is big. It's bigger than any of us, obviously. It's huge. It's global. It's massive. And it makes a big difference as to what we will see in our lives in terms of return on investment, overall quality of life, what we can afford, what we can't afford. And, you know, by proxy, you could lump Western Europe into a lot of this discussion. You could lump Canada into it because... That's all sort of, uh, to some degree, connected on the same plane. Whereas the East and countries like China, that's that's the different plane, okay? Interesting stuff here. Let's talk about uh, property management and what to do and another thing you can use when you experience some tough times. Again, if you are not familiar with some of our self-management training, take advantage of that. You can go to hartmaneducation.com or jasonhartman.com and take advantage of a lot of that stuff. Also, we've got a couple events coming up. Our Venture Alliance trip in Seattle is right around the corner, and that's going to be a great trip. We've got, uh, I think we've got the biggest group ever on a Venture Alliance trip. That's going to be awesome. That's in Seattle. Check out VentureAllianceMastermind.com for details there. You can join us as a guest for a one-time $2,000 fee. And then if you want something much less expensive, (laughs) come join us in Phoenix the following weekend, September 10th and 11th, for our real estate, software, and buying event. Uh, Check that out at jasonhartman.com. Okay, let's go to our guest. It's my pleasure to welcome David Merrill to the show. He is Director of Business Development and National Account Executive at Nationwide Eviction. And wouldn't it be great if you could have a single provider to help you with eviction services nationwide? Welcome, David. How are you? I'm doing well, Jason. Hope you are. Good. Good to have you. And you're coming to us from Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, in the past, as, as we had talked about before, this has always been a one-off deal. Either either property owners could handle the evictions themselves uh, when they come up. Hopefully, that's not too often. But occasionally, it's going to happen to all of us. You can do it yourself. You can have your property manager handle it if you have a property manager and you're not self-managing. Or you contact a local attorney service that is usually set up as kind of a mill where they do flat fee evictions for anywhere from maybe four to $600 or so, and they can do it. But if you have a portfolio in, say, three to five different metro areas nationwide, which is a good strategy for investors to be properly diversified, it's a little harder because you got to have different parties and deal with different companies everywhere. Now, I assume you're not a law firm, right, your company? That is correct. Uh, we're an, I'm not an attorney, and our company is not a law firm. Okay. And so so you're a, you're a tech company, basically. And, and what do you do? Do you match customers with eviction service providers? Is that how you do it? To a degree, yes. So we're a software solution to that age-old eviction problem. Tell, tell us more about that. How does it work? Well, it really depends on the jurisdiction where your properties are. So as I'm sure many of you listeners are very well aware, especially if they have portfolios in multiple areas, Evictions can be handled very, very differently, not just across state lines or county lines, but even sometimes in within a certain city. Uh, as an example, the city of Houston has 16 different JP courts, and it seems like each one of those courts handles evictions just a little bit differently. So our solution for that is to allow you to file evictions online in a very standard and streamlined method. You can file it from anywhere in the country or outside of the country, if you'd rather. And then we provide we send that information to a local attorney or service provider 
You know the courts, they know the laws in that area, and they actually service the case for you. So so you're basically a referral network then, right? Would that be a proper way to, to put, understand the business model? Yes and no. Uh, there are some states where you do not have to be an attorney to handle evictions. So in some areas where service provider is allowed, so we may use a third-party firm, or we may actually handle them ourselves. It just depends on that specific market. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And does the cost vary in different markets, or is it one price nationwide? It varies widely. So as an example, in a city like Chicago, you might see evictions cost, even with our attorney who handles bulk cases there, about $350 per case. As an example, since I mentioned Houston, we handled multifamily evictions there for $75 per case, or single-family evictions for $85 a case. The most popular attorney in that area, um, we just had a client leave him and sign on with us yesterday who I've been working with that management company for some time. That They listed that he was charging them $936 per case plus the court. Oh, my cost. God. That's outrageous. Wow. You, I've never heard of it being that high. Yeah. Extreme examples. Wow. Right. Yeah. So $75 or $80, boy, folks, and, and 350 in Chicago, that's actually pretty reasonable, too, because I'm used to seeing services that are about four to $600. That's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm used to seeing. But these are all attorney services. Now, when you talk about Houston being $75, $85, that's not, no attorneys required, right? And your company is doing that? Is that strictly a paperwork process? Or uh, tell us why the price varies so much. Well, to be completely transparent, which we always try to do, the numbers that I mentioned do not include court costs because those can vary from one county to the next beside each other. Um, but essentially, the pricing for the services is going to be the same. So in Houston, when you go online, you need to file your eviction for your property. It'll take two to three minutes to provide us with the information we need for your case, including giving us the documents that we need. We'll populate the correct forms that you need. And one of the best parts of our value is if you're filing evictions yourself or you're paying a property manager who may oversee a single portfolio of properties, you have to deal with payment issues. We prepay your court costs for you, and then we'll let you know when we get the hearing scheduled for. We'll update you with the court date, and we'll attend that hearing for you as well. One of the things that still surprises me in Texas is that a lot of property managers are wasting anywhere from 10, 15, 20 hours per week or per month, I'm sorry just dealing with evictions. And there's a lot of other things they could be doing during that time. Yeah. So you have someone uh, go and attend that hearing. Is that an appearance attorney that you're using? Uh, by the way, folks, for those of you who may not know, I only recently learned about this idea uh, because I'm trying to collect from a guy in Texas right now, actually. And this is not on an eviction. Uh, this is just on another matter. Then one of my California attorneys actually told me that there are these People called appearance attorneys, where for 65 bucks, maybe 95 bucks, depending on what they're doing, they'll just go and appear for you. They're actual attorneys, and they'll appear at a hearing or even a deposition or all kinds of things for you. I, I can't imagine they would be, it would be possible for them to know anything about what's going on <laughs> in any real detail, but uh, they will appear. So that's kind of interesting. Um, is, that, is that how you're doing it with appearance attorneys? Or, uh, you know, how, how can you be in all these areas? That's an incredibly complex. Cases can be handled with appearance attorneys in states like Georgia and Florida. But in Texas, when we represent you for your case, not only do we file out the case with the court on your behalf, but our staff attends the hearing for you as well. And the reason we're able to do that is because the way Texas law is listed, it allows for non-attorney representation. So we can provide that service to you acting as an agent on your behalf, and it saves you quite a bit of money. Wow. So so $75, $85 plus court cost. And I, I know this varies, and you may not know this off the top of your head, but any idea what the court costs are? I just want to get a, some sense for the listeners. In Texas, it varies from 111 to 131 Okay, so for about 200 bucks, you can get your eviction done. David, that's fantastic. What about after the eviction? You know, one of the things I see so many investors just leaving it on the table is they don't bother to get a judgment against the tenant. Can your company help with that, or do you strictly, strictly get them out, and then the judgment is up to the owner to go and pursue that? We will really try to stay away from the judgment part of it because there can be so many potential fatal flaws with that. I personally feel that people should go after that as often as they can. But of course, 
that's going to be an individual decision. Right, right. And and just to explain that to the listeners, you know, there this is really a two-step thing, not in all cases, but in a lot of them. You know, the tenant stops paying you rent, and then you file for eviction, and eviction basically just stops the bleeding. You want to get them out so you can get the property ready and lease it to a new tenant and start producing income again. But a, a lot of times, that tenant is obviously behind on rent, and they owe you money, and their security deposit may not but not always, may not be enough to cover it. Maybe they've left some damage to the property too, and you've got to pay for that. So that's when you can go to court and get a judgment against them. And, you know, those judgments can be renewed forever. Folks, I'm telling you, You'll collect on a lot of these things if you if you just pursue them. It's uh, it's worth it. Don't just let them off the hook. You know, too many investors. It seems like they'd rather have a story about how they got screwed over by a tenant than have the money. I'd rather have the money. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that's true. So you don't deal with the judgment part, but at least you'll get the eviction done for them, right? That's correct. We'll handle the case from the really the end of the the notice all the way through the writ. And then we're working on a couple other products that I'll be happy to call you back about in the future that may help with other areas of property management around the eviction areas. Fantastic. Uh, Can you give us any clues on that or are they top secret? They're still top secret right now because they're in development, but we're very, very excited about them. And one of the products that we're working on, we think is going to absolutely revolutionize the way single family homes are being managed. Wow. Fantastic. That sounds pretty darn exciting. This is... Single-family homes, I believe, are the most historically proven asset class in the world. Single-family income properties, done right. And the the part that makes or breaks the thing is in the management. That's the frustration of most investors. You've got to learn how to manage your properties or learn how to manage your managers, one or the other. Do you, if you have any thoughts about some of the more landlord-friendly markets and, uh, and least landlord-friendly markets uh, around the U.S. in the markets you do business in, if you have any thoughts on those. Of course, my former home, the Socialist Republic of California, very landlord-unfriendly. New York, very landlord-unfriendly. Texas, very landlord-friendly. Any thoughts about that in in different uh, places around the country? Uh, Arkansas, the most landlord-friendly state in the entire country, in my opinion. Thoughts there? Well, you're definitely right. And you mentioned a lot of the same states that I would highlight as well. I think that's one of the things that you look at as you're buying investment properties. It's certainly one of the things that I look at. I would certainly be a lot more interested in buying property in a state like Arkansas, Texas, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, than I might be in somewhere like Illinois, someplace uh, like New York or Connecticut or Massachusetts, California. And I actually just met one of your colleagues, Fernando Aries, in California, in San Francisco for the National Apartment Association. And he and I had some pretty interesting talks about that. And in preparation for the trade show, I was speaking with a law firm there, the, the senior partner, and he was telling me about some of the very interesting things that California does to protect residents. And I'm all for protecting residents, but ultimately, this is something we're all doing for investment. This is, it's a business decision. I was very shocked to hear that in California, that somebody's eviction record is actually sealed, I believe it is, for 60 days so that they can go find another property. That seems like that's information that a property manager or an investor would want to know about a potential resident before allowing him to move in. Yeah, I agree. You know, I've thought about that one. And I that's an interest that's interesting that you bring that up, David. In a way, it kind of helps get that tenant out, though. It may not be a, a great service to the new landlord, but to the old one, it kind of is. Because if that's not on their record for 60 days, they can go get another property and get out of yours, you know? So it's sort of a catch-22. I, I can see that from both sides. And listen, I'm no apologist for California. I can't stand <laughs> it there. I mean, it's just, you know, it's uh, it's ridiculous. Look, it's my I live there the vast majority of my life, but it's a ridiculous state. It's very hard to do business there. Uh, as long as I employed people in California, I swear to God, the state did not want me to employ anybody. They made it so difficult. It was absurd. But yeah, you know, invest in markets that are friendly to your cause as a landlord. That's one of the elements. You mentioned Illinois, and I agree with you that it's not the most landlord-friendly market for sure, uh, but it's not as bad as some others. Interestingly, and we resisted doing business in this market for a long time, but in some of the Chicagoland areas, the deals are pretty good. Even as mismanaged and as left-wing as it is, the numbers are just 
they're good. <laughs> so, you know, you, you look, you look at a variety of factors and it's sort of like finding the perfect spouse, right? The perfect spouse does not exist. Princess Charming and Prince Charming do not exist, right? But, you know, you take a little bit of bad for mostly good. <laughs> you know, there's some things that bug you about your, your, your spouse probably. Uh, but, you know, overall, it's, it's a, it's a good deal, hopefully. <laughs> and, and, and that's the way it is with a property. You've got to, you've got to kind of weigh this stuff out. And it's a trade. There are always trade offs in life. But yeah, some of these trade offs are just too vast. And, and, uh, and interestingly, the, the landlord unfriendly markets tend to have very poor cash flow. So in uh, very bad, what I call LTI ratios, land to improvement ratios. So they they really don't make sense in, in, in any way at all. So I, I just want to highlight a couple of features. Tell us about smart eviction technology a little bit, if you would. I know you've alluded to this, but is there anything more you want listeners to know? Certainly. Smart eviction technology is a very easy concept. And I did allude to that a little bit. Simply put, that's what allows you to file your evictions for your Miami properties the same way you would for your San Diego properties and the same exact way you would for St. Louis. It's a standardized form that will adapt itself based on the local needs. So as an example, in Georgia, you do not need a lease, a ledger, or a notice when you're filing your eviction. But in Texas, you need all three of those plus an SCRA form. So our system adapts based on what the requirements are there and also the type of eviction you're doing. So if you're filing a non-payment of rent eviction, that's going to be very different than what it would be for, say, a criminal activity eviction. Yeah, right. So a criminal activity eviction is like a breaking a covenant. If you find that your tenant is drug dealing out of the property, you can evict them for that, even if they're paying you. And, uh, you know, but you might just negotiate with them and see if you can get percentage rent on the drug dealing. Uh, that is a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always thought those meth labs with percentage rent would be a pretty good deal. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, just understand that I say some of this stuff for purely entertainment value, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, breaking bad. Uh, okay, so it, it simplifies that process and makes it easy. How many evictions has your company done? How old is this? Give us an idea as to, you know, the, the company a little bit. The concept started back in 2009. And we started doing business in 2010 because we are a private company and we try to keep things, some things close to the chest. We don't really divulge that information. But I can tell you there are some major markets where we are handling between a quarter and a third of all of the evictions done in those major metropolitan areas. Um, and then when you consider states like Maryland, where Maryland, you may file an eviction on somebody several times before you get the judgment absolute. That should give you a, a pretty good concept that we're doing quite a few cases every month. Wow. Yeah, I, I bet you are. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. You have a video on your website about collections. I know that you don't handle the judgment part of it. Do you have any suggestions on collections or how people should handle the judgment aspect of an eviction if there is a judgment opportunity? The first thing I always recommend to people is make sure you're handling all of your cases the exact same way. You never want to handle things for one property differently than you handled the previous or the next property. And I think that goes with collections as well. Um, we're not a collections company. We have an interface with a collections provider, National Credit Systems, that allows you to file your evictions through our system and then any information you've put in our system will then get sent to NCS when you select it. Um, I really think it's finding what solution works best for you. So if you are somebody that owns a handful of properties and you're looking to get more into it, I would definitely send those out to a professional service provider. It's really the companies that are that mid-sized range that try to do it internally. Mm -hmm. I think those may be a good fit in those cases, but most of the time using a professional service provider like that is almost always going to be your best bet. And especially from what I've seen in collections, there are so many things that could potentially go wrong and potential liability concerns. I'd want to make sure those are all handled the right way every time. Okay, so first of all, what do you mean by a professional uh, provider there? What, what do you mean by that? A, a debt collector, hire a collections company? Is that what you mean? A debt collector, a collections company, or an attorney that handles those types of things. Um, we have a great attorney in the Tidewater area of Virginia that does a great job with collections. He is definitely somebody that I would recommend. Or companies like ProCollect, NCS, Rent Recovery Solutions. All of those companies do a great job, and they don't get paid on, it, on the collections until you do. So it's in their best interest to, be, to do everything that they legally can to help you get, get paid. 
Right, right. Fantastic. Okay. Any tips that you want to give the listeners just on on anything, maybe something I haven't asked you, just any tips about how to deal with their tenants, uh, how to possibly prevent an eviction and and uh, and make sure that you you don't get there. Uh, of course, that's your business. So this may be uh, <laughs> counter to your ultimate goals, but just any any suggestions you have on how to better manage properties, manage evictions and so forth. I would definitely recommend use standard forms whenever possible. So that could include something like a notice to vacate um, all the way through your lease. Anytime you can use something like that, that's accepted generally in your area, that helps set you up to be successful. And that's ultimately the best way to win cases like this, to either be successful with your eviction or be successful in getting paid so you don't have to file an eviction. And ultimately, that's the best case scenario for everybody, including for us. So that would be one of the first things I would say. And then just because you're about to file an eviction on somebody doesn't mean that you can't talk to them. Uh, if you have a handful of properties and you've got a relationship with your renters, I would always say talk to them, work with them. Just because you've provided a notice to vacate doesn't mean that you can't accept money from them. In most cases, again, that could vary based on states. But again, try to have a relationship with them because if you can avoid filing in the first place, that could potentially save you some money and get you paid. And I've heard of people do cash for keys. Yeah, and I just want to, ex- okay, okay, that's a good one. I'll, we'll get back to that. But I just want to expand on what you were saying there. You said that in, in many states, even if they're in the eviction process, you can accept money from them. Be very be very careful with that. And I'm sure you would echo this because, for example, I believe it's California. If you accept any money from them, you got to start the whole process over. And that could just, you know, if they give you 50 bucks and and they owe you 3000, you might have to just start over and and that'll buy them another 60 days possibly, right? So you got to be careful with that. But I do agree with you, keep the lines of communication open. One of the big mistakes when people get into disputes, uh, so many of these things could just be prevented if people would just talk. <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's amazing to me how that how that is in the world. But any, any thoughts there? And then I want to ask you about cash for keys too, because that was a very good point. I think you really covered it. And if somebody knows that you're willing to work with them and they're not one of those people that will just try to take advantage of you because unfortunately those people do exist, people want to be happy where they are. They want to live in a nice place. And personally, I hate moving. So if I can avoid moving, I'm going to do anything I can to prevent myself from having to move. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Um, You have a great little sort of calculator, if you will, almost on your website, where someone can just go and they can put in the zip code of the property, and it instantly calculates the fees. And so the fees consist of the the court fees, okay, that are just the public court, what they charge, plus the attorney or service provider fee. And so, for example, I put in my zip code here in Arizona, and I see that the eviction will cost, and this is the breakdown, $58.00. Uh, as a court fee, $25 sheriff fee, an attorney fee of $135, so that's $218. And then, if necessary, the writ of possession. And that consists of three things, a court fee, a sheriff fee, and an attorney fee, uh, totaling $191. So for both of these, it's $218 plus $191. Is that how that works? That's correct. Right. But the writ of possession is not always necessary, I guess. Tell us about that a little bit. It's not. Sometimes after you get possession, your resident will go ahead and move out as per the order of the court, but they don't always do that. Sometimes you do have to have law enforcement, a sheriff, a constable come to the property, and you have to physically remove that person from the property. And that means moving your things out, depending on the state, that can vary based on how you have to store it or how you remove it, and then you change the locks. Unfortunately, we see that happening more often than we think it should, but one of the things that I think personally property managers should do more often is making sure that they're going through that writ process. In some states, Texas being a good example of this, you can file an appeal on losing possession as a resident and do so up until that writ is filed. So if I get possession for a case today, you can go to the court on Friday, appeal that case, and then you have to hear that case all the way over from the beginning on a different level court. 
But if I get that writ filed, and how much how much time how much time would you lose in that case? Would you lose another three weeks or a month? I mean, that's that's could be disastrous for a landlord, right? It can be. In most cases, you are losing several weeks on that process because there's going to be yeah. a process. time is money. It is. There's a process to get that scheduled. There are certain steps that can be taken as well, but ultimately, you may be going from a magistrate or a JP level court up to a county level, depending on again what state that's in. And you'll see a lot of additional delays. And then when you see other things that happen that tend to be a little bit more resident friendly. I want to share a mind-blowing example with listeners. You know how I did that calculation, and I'm just using your website. This is fantastic. I love this. I'm using your website to do the calculation. I plugged in my old zip code in Orange County, California, and it just shows you landlord friendliness versus non-landlord friendliness, right? Arizona being far more friendly than the Socialist Republic of California. You remember those fees I just said a moment ago. This is going to blow your mind, listeners. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. Listen to this. Remember, there's two sets of fees. There's the eviction and the writ of possession if it's necessary. Okay, so this is in the 92660 zip code, which is Newport Beach, California. Okay, the court fee, get like, like the, the difference is amazing. And I don't have the other fees in front of me, but I did say them just a moment ago. The, the court fee in, uh, in, in Newport Beach is... You had mentioned, I believe it was $58 for your current zip code in Arizona. And then I believe 25 for the sheriff and 131 for the attorney fee. Yeah, absolutely. So get this. You ready, listeners? I hope you're sitting down. Because just for the eviction in Newport Beach, the court fee alone is 240 bucks. The sheriff fee, instead of, I think, being $25 or something, is now $145. And the attorney fee is $310. The total cost being $695. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. And then the writ of possession, uh, somewhat in line with the other, of $175 total. But $695 versus, I think, what did we say in the last one? $191 or something? Unbelievable. It's I believe it was 218 and 195. Wow. Just unbelievable. That's insane. That is just insane. So you can go and you can plug in the different zip codes in which you own or are thinking of buying properties and you get an idea. That's a barometer right there for the tenant friendliness versus the landlord friendliness of that court system. Very telling and very interesting. Tell us about Cash for Keys. Now, this is something that if you watch that documentary I recommended or that movie, maybe it's not really a documentary, it might be more of a movie, uh, 99 Homes or 99 Houses, it's on Netflix, it's great, talking all about the ground zero for the foreclosure crisis in, in Orlando, Florida, which was fascinating. And, and you know that during the Great Recession, lenders giving uh, borrowers or tenant occupants of properties that were foreclosed on what's called cash for keys to just get them to move out was a common practice. And people also occasionally do it with tenants as well. And the more landlord-friendly the market, the less likely you'll have to do this. The more tenant-friendly, the more likely you might have to do something like this. Anything you want to tell us about cash for keys? I don't hear about it very frequently, and my first exposure to it was before I got into the industry. I was during the end of the economic boom and the beginning of the Great Recession. I was dating a foreclosure attorney, and she told me that she was doing this with a couple folks that they were just offering cash for keys to get people to move out of foreclosure properties, and the concept just amazed me. And then I saw the same thing happen to one of my best friends. The property that he lived on in, in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, the owner of the property wasn't paying their mortgage, so the property was being foreclosed on, even though he was renting it and paying rent. So the foreclosure company offered them cash for keys, and they were out within 10 days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, money makes the world go round. It sure does. Yeah, good stuff. Well, David, let's wrap it up. Give out your website. Any closing comments you have? You can always find us at nationwideeviction.com, www.nationwideeviction.com. And I think the final best practice that I really do want to offer to everybody is set a standardized eviction filing date. Depending on the state, you may be able to file evictions as early as the 8th, sometimes sooner than that. But the faster you file your eviction, the faster you get to court, the faster you get that non-paying resident out, and the faster you get somebody back in that property that will pay you rent. So that's definitely something I recommend very, very highly. And if you're doing these evictions yourself, that's fantastic. But just ask yourself, what else could you be doing with that time? 
Absolutely. There's always that opportunity cost question and that highest and best use question. Uh, and this is not the best use of your time. So this is a great service. I'm really glad uh, we had you on the show. And uh, I think a lot of our, uh, our clients will be interested in taking advantage of it. Thank you so much for joining us, David Merrill. All right. Thank you, Jason. I've never really thought of Jason as subversive, but I just found out that's what Wall Street considers him to be. Really? Now, how is that possible at all? Simple. Wall Street believes that real estate investors are dangerous to their schemes because the dirty truth about income property is that it actually works in real life. I know. I mean, how many people do you know, not including insiders, who created wealth with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Those options are for people who only want to pretend they're getting ahead. Stocks and other non-direct traded assets are a losing game for most people. The typical scenario is you make a little, you lose a little, and spin your wheels for decades. That's because the corporate crooks running the stock and bond investing game will always see to it that they win. This means, unless you're one of them, you will not win. And unluckily for Wall Street, Jason has a unique ability to make the everyday person understand investing the way it should be. He shows them a world where anything less than a 26% annual return is disappointing. Yep, and that's why Jason offers a one-book set on creating wealth that comes with 20 digital download audios. He shows us how we can be excited about these scary times and exploit the incredible opportunities this present economy has afforded us. We can pick local markets untouched by the economic downturn, exploit packaged commodities investing, and achieve exceptional returns safely and securely. I like how he teaches you how to protect the equity in your home before it disappears and how to outsource your debt obligations to the government. And this set of advanced strategies for wealth creation is being offered for only $197. To get your Creating Wealth Encyclopedia Book 1, complete with over 20 hours of audio, go to jasonhartman.com forward slash store. If you want to be able to sit back and collect checks every month, just like a banker, Jason's Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series is for you. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.